I invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and verse 37. We'll read the scripture here in just a moment in a message entitled, The Glory of Jesus on Display. The glory of God is the magnificence of his holiness manifested for people to see and to experience. The glory of Jesus is revealed in Luke chapter 9 in the transfiguration, which we considered. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration that Peter, James, and John were privileged to see a revelation of majestic glory. The transfiguration presents the perfection of the humanity and the deity of Jesus, the significance of his fulfilling both the law and the prophets, as well as his sovereign purpose in being sent forth by God the Father to do his will. We had a preview also in the transfiguration of Jesus in his glory and what's going to come in his return. When he comes back in victory and power and we see him for who he is. Many years after the experience of the transfiguration, Peter recalled what they had seen there on the mountain. He recorded it in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 through 18. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We find Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the mountain back to the reality of the world from the mountain to the valley and immediately they're met with a crisis. I think there's probably some interesting conversation going on amongst the disciples as they came down from the mountain to the valley about what they had just seen, the glory that they had just witnessed there in the Mount of Transfiguration. And they came back to see Jesus display his glory in the midst of the mess of the world. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37, says, Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it 
and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. First, I want to show you in this passage that there is desperation in the multitude. There's desperation in the multitude. Now, to despair of something is to get to the point in life where you have a complete loss and an absence of hope. We've all been there in some regard at one time or another. Maybe it's because of the grief of loss. Perhaps it's because of the experience of a broken relationship. Maybe it's because of of a particular struggle with sin. Maybe it's a financial predicament. Or perhaps it's a health circumstance. We know that mountaintop experiences are great, but most of life is lived in the valley. Most of life is lived in the midst of the mess. And there is a contrast here between the glory of Jesus above and the preview of what's to come as the curtain was pulled back just a little bit on eternity in the transfiguration. And now the glory of Jesus below that is in the dark world as the light shines into the darkness. I.H. Marshall said, what was visible only to the chosen three on the mountain is here about to be visible to a greater number. Peter, James, and John would have loved to have stayed up on the mountain, but they, like we, have to learn to trust Jesus in the desperation of the valley in our moment of greatest need. The Italian mountain climber Reinhold Messner is a legend. He's been referred to as the greatest mountain climber of all time. He and Peter Haber were the first ones who scaled Mount Everest without using bottled oxygen after doctors said that it couldn't be done. This man turned around and uh, scaled the mountain again in four days on a different route than he had gone before just to prove that he could do it. That began a quest that took place in the 1980s when he became the first man to rise to the summit of the 14 mountains in the world that are over 8,000 meters in elevation or over 29,000 feet. Messner's a man who has seen perspectives of the world that nobody else will ever see, but he's also experienced the difficulty of the valley. After his first effort to make it to the summit of that 8,000-meter mountain, he and his younger brother, Guthner, began to descend down the mountain. Two days into their descent, an avalanche occurred. His younger brother, Guthner, was swept away, and they never found his body. He was killed, never to be seen again. You see, this is a real-life illustration for us that When we reach the summit and we're on the mountain, we can see some amazing things. There can be some exciting things happening, but there are also some very real difficulties in the valley. In fact, no matter how exciting the mountaintop experience is, the valley can be very painful. And it was a desperate scene that Jesus and his disciples arrived upon. A voice calls out from the multitude. The voice is pleading with Jesus, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. This phrase, look on my son, or look at my son, is the same phrase that Mary uses in the Magnificat in reference to God's compassion. Look with mercy, Lord, 
This is the same idea of this father who is crying out to the Lord about his only son. Lord, look at my only son, my only child. Please look at him with mercy, I implore you. And while the man was not praying a formal prayer, he was praying and talking to God nonetheless. And there are many prayers in the Bibles in the Bible that rise out of desperation. In fact, some of the most heartfelt prayers come out of desperation. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 6 and verse 2 and following, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim and I drench my couch with my tears. Now the specific problem that we encounter here in Luke chapter 9 was a demon tormenting this boy. There was desperation in the multitude because of this demon that had come upon this boy. And we have to recognize here that we would by no means say that all sickness comes because of a spiritual issue, but that was the case here. But it tells us a much greater story, and that brings me to the second idea. There is destruction because of opposition. Now, what we find here is an encounter with the supernatural. It's similar to the encounter with the supernatural that we've already witnessed in Luke chapter 8. The boy was in such a circumstance that he would scream and he would convulse and he would foam at the mouth and he was bruised because of it. There are parallel accounts of this miracle in Matthew chapter 17 and also Mark chapter 9. I'm going to refer to a couple of those as I move along in these few moments. But those parallel accounts tell us that he was even thrown into the fire or into the water. He was covered with scars and that the spirit had even made him deaf and mute and it hardly ever left him. You remember that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he encountered spiritual opposition repeatedly from many demons. The demons are the fallen angels that were cast out of heaven. As spirit beings, they have the ability to take possession of a physical body and to control that person. They're described in the Bible as evil spirits, unclean spirits, lying spirits, and angels of Satan. They were defeated when Christ disarmed the powers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them. When Christ triumphed over them by the cross and they await their final destination of eternity in hell with all who would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, they can still oppose the work and the will of God. And they try to do so at every front. The father says in verse 40, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. You say, wait a minute, what happened? Just days before, in their Galilean ministry. They had seen supernatural things take place. They'd had the ability to do this very type of thing, but what happens here in this circumstance that after they're implored to cast this demon out of the boy that they could not? Well, Jesus tells us. He gives us some insight. He refers in verse 41 to a faithless and perverse generation. He says, how long shall I be with you and bear with you. I think this was a broad rebuke that ranged from the disciples to the multitude. Here was the problem. The problem was unbelief. The problem was a lack of faith. And after a night of glory and communion, Jesus probably felt like a stranger as he's now in the midst of unbelief. 
and his disciples had tried, and, and what seems to be indicated here is maybe repeatedly they had tried to help the boy, but they could not. Mark chapter 9 and verse 29, Jesus is asked privately, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said to his disciples, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting draw us closer to God because they're an act of surrender and submission to God. In fact, I would say that prayer and fasting are outward signs of an inward dependence on God. And we find these expressions of prayer and fasting throughout the Bible, examples of people who came to a point of desperation or arrived at a point of need, and they came to the Lord and brought it before him in prayer and fasting. In the Old Testament, Nehemiah prayed and fasted because of his deep distress over the news that Jerusalem had been desolated. His many days of prayer were characterized by tears and fasting and confession on behalf of the people and pleas to God for mercy. And the devastation that came on Jerusalem also prompted Daniel to adopt a similar posture. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3, he says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Like Nehemiah, Daniel fasted and prayed that God would have mercy on the people. He recognized the wickedness of the people that had gotten him in that circumstance. So many times in the Bible, prayer and fasting are linked closely together. Warren Wearsby said about this, the authority that Jesus had given them to his disciples was effective only if it was exercised by faith. But faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. So think about it this way. Faith is in every regard a gift. It's, it's a grace gift that comes to us from God. But faith has to be exercised. It's not enough just to know the concept about God, but we have to actually depend on God in the circumstances of life. Biblical faith is believing in who God is and what God has promised in his word. And I would say to you that total dependence on God is the remedy for our spiritual problems. But let me ask you this question. If the people of faith often have so little faith, then why would the faithless want to be people of faith? Let me ask that again. If the people of faith often have so little faith, then why would the faithless want to be people of faith? See, that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Because even when our faith falters, when we continue to trust in God, what we're doing is we're giving a testimony of who we believe in, and where our trust is. In fact, I would say in a moment like we are in right now, while we deal with the circumstance that we're in with prudence and caution and care and good wisdom, this is in a very real way for us our moment as the people of God to show who it is that we're trusting in, to show that we're not afraid of temporal circumstances. That we're not living with anxiety because of the situation that we find ourselves in. But our hope is in God. And perhaps 
the strength of our hope that is in God is greater than it has ever been before. And we need faith to be able to please God. And even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Now, Jesus refers here also to the problem of the perverse generation. It's an interesting reference. It's actually a reference to Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses. Uh, This was a song that every synagogue-attending Jew would have known well. The same word that is translated here as perverse was used in the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5 and then again in verse 20 where he says, A warped and crooked generation, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be. For listen, for they are a perverse generation. They are children who are unfaithful. Something that is perverse has the idea of a twisting or bending out of shape. The term was used to describe a piece of pottery that a careless craftsman had misshapen or something that had been distorted before it was fired in the oven. And anyone who lacks faith cannot help but have a distorted view of God, His Word, and His will. So we've got to get our eyes off of ourselves in the circumstance, and we have to look to the Lord, because when we look to the Lord, then He's going to give us a vision and an understanding from the Word of who God is and what God is able to do and what God has promised and what God's will is for us. And when those things come into focus, and the majesty of God is our focus, Everything else is going to flow in behind it. And we're going to have the clarity that we need. And that brings me to the third point. There is deliverance in power. Verse 42 says, And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Deliverance in power takes place when we come to Jesus. Now the picture of what takes place here is terrible. Think about how this father must have felt in this moment to see his son maimed and scarred and out of control. He's wallowing in the mud. He's muted and he's staring up with terror-filled eyes because of this circumstance that he's in. And Mark's account of, of this miracle tells us that when he saw Jesus, he fell to the ground and was convulsed also And I think the reiteration of that tells us that the demon who possessed the boy knew that his time was short. And he wanted to do absolutely as much damage as he could possibly do in the boy's life. And the man was unsure, even in that moment, of whether Jesus could help him. The parallel account tells us that Jesus said to him, If you can believe, All things are possible to him who believes. The man replied to Jesus, help my unbelief. Did you know that only a heart of faith can say that? And maybe you find yourself in this moment in a very difficult situation. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. And maybe you're having a hard time believing that God can meet you at that point of need. Maybe you're having a hard time believing that there's an answer. Maybe you're having a hard time grasping on and holding on to the fact that God is able. And maybe the prayer that you need to pray is, Lord, help my unbelief. That's from a heart of faith where we come to the throne of God and and we say, God, I can't, but you can. Help my unbelief. And the Lord will meet us at our point of need, and he'll help us. The scripture says here that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed 
the child and he gave him back to his father. Just a plain description. Friends, just like that, the boy was made completely whole. And the Lord restored him and gave him back to his father. I think there were probably cheers in the crowd when they saw what had happened. This has been going on for a long time. This boy is possessed and he's beaten up and, and he's out of control. And the Lord speaks the word, frees him, gives him back to the father. And I believe there were probably shouts of joy for what had taken place. But I want to draw a very important parallel here that we must not miss. Otherwise, we'll miss the point of this story. There is a desperate physical circumstance represented here. Brought on specifically by the darkness of evil opposition. But it points to a desperate spiritual circumstance brought on by our sin. Now let's draw the spiritual parallel and see how it applies to us. What is sin? Sin is rebellion. Sin is missing the mark of the holiness of God. There is a crooked or perverse spirit that is associated with sin because it is simply rebellion against God. God hates sin because it's in opposition to his nature. Psalm 5 and verse 4 says, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. And sin is described in the Bible symbolically as putrefying sores by Isaiah, a heavy burden in the Psalms, as defiling filth by Titus, or a binding debt by Matthew, or darkness in John's epistle, or as a scarlet stain again by Isaiah. And do you know that God hates sin because it violates his holiness, but God also hates sin because it separates us from him? Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And I want you to know today that there is no more desperate situation that any of us could find ourselves in than being separated from God. There is no more desperate situation that we could be in. And there is no more desperate eternal situation that we could possibly be headed toward than to be separated from God. Did you know that the most awful thing about hell will be separation from the God who created us and who extended grace to us? But yet, if you reject him, you'll end up apart from him. You can't get any more desperate than that. But through the life sacrificial death of Jesus and his resurrection. He has secured our salvation. Now watch this. Through faith in him, when we turn from our sins and we turn to Jesus and the hope of the gospel, the Lord rescues us. He heals us. And he brings us back to our Father. Can you see the amazing power of Jesus and what's happening in this story? He healed this boy. He got the demon out of the boy and he brought him back to his Father restored. And in the same way, spiritually and eternally, that's what God has done for us in Christ. Is that he has rescued us from our sins. He has healed us and he brings us back to our Father. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
so that our prayer is the prayer of 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The good work that God starts in you, he's guaranteed that he's going to finish. Now Luke provides a unique summary verse, unique to his account of this miracle in the first part of verse 43 and I'm coming toward a close and they were all amazed at the greatness of God are you amazed at the greatness and the majesty of God are you in awe of who our God is and what he has done you see the glory of Jesus was manifested and his compassion was shown through the work of deliverance, and all were amazed. Jesus begins to tell his disciples what's going to happen to him, and Matthew tells us that they were filled with grief after they heard it. They're not fully getting it and grasping it and understanding yet. But what is to come is that the Lord was going to embrace the cross and suffer on our behalf so that we could be set free. That's what he was about to do. And friend, I want to encourage you with this truth as I wrap up the message today and I want you to hear me clearly there's no situation that is too desperate to bring to Jesus there's none doesn't matter how far the pit is that you've gotten yourself into it doesn't matter how dark the night is it doesn't matter how deep the pain is it doesn't matter how many questions you have in your heart about the situation you're in. There is no situation that is too desperate to bring to Jesus. In fact, one of the best places that you can be spiritually is to be desperate. Because when we get to the place where we're desperate and we recognize that it's only God, that's where our help comes from. It's in our self-sufficiency and in our strength and in our pride and in our unwillingness to surrender that we struggle even more because we're not arriving at the answer but it's when we come to the place where we're desperate and we say only God that's when we find deliverance and that's when we find real and lasting hope do you know him today have you surrendered your life to the only one who can forgive you and save you the gospel's good news because it's what God has done on our behalf. He sent his only son to live and to die and to now live again. And he stands ready to receive us. If you'll confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise from God. And if you are far from God today, if you are desperate and own your own and you don't know where to turn, I can tell you the only place to turn is to turn to God and he'll rescue you. He will save your soul. And if you already know him, you're still trying to do it on your own. Still trying to get through the valley in your own strength. Recognize your need to trust in God in all circumstances. And when you do, he'll give you the faith that you need. And he'll answer that prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray.
Father, I'm so grateful for this account from the life of Jesus. He came down from the mountain and entered into the valley. He entered into the mess of the world, and really that's figurative of what he did with his entire being, leaving the glory of heaven and entering into the mess of this life to rescue us from our brokenness, our lostness, and to restore us and to redeem us and to reconcile us back to you. We thank you that he was willing to fix his eyes firmly on the cross and not turn from it, but to willingly endure the punishment that we deserve that we might have everlasting life. Thank you for this good news. I pray for anyone who's under the sound of my voice, either listening to this message now or later, that they would see and understand the hope. They would understand the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ and be saved. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Uh, undoubtedly, there are many who are dealing with life circumstances that are a real struggle. And sometimes we try to depend on ourselves and we try to come up with our own answers and try to solve our own problems. But God, help us to arrive at that point of destination uh, of desperation and, and recognize that it's only you. It's only you, Lord. You're our only hope. And you're faithful. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.